author and counselor Paul Tripp once asked this, if there is a riddle of your own faith, of your walk with God, what would it be? Maybe you don't understand why your life has had so much difficulty in it. Or perhaps you don't understand why you've had so many moments in life where you have lacked wisdom. Maybe you don't understand why there's so much anger in your heart. Or why you experience as much conflict as you do. Perhaps you struggle knowing how much to entrust to God and how much you are responsible for. Maybe if you're honest, you open God's Word and you have a hard time getting much meaningful out of God's Word. You love gathering with the church. You love listening to sermons. But when you read the Bible on your own, you just feel as though you get little out of it. Perhaps there are moments where you feel insignificant and unnoticed, even by your church family. And you believe that there are times where you could slip in and slip out without even being recognized. Or perhaps you wonder if prayer really makes any difference at all. Whatever it is that you would say is my riddle as it pertains to my walk with the Lord. These are just a sampling of the issues that James considers in his letter. Some of the most common questions to life and faith find their answers in this small letter of James. And what we will find over and over in the letter of James is that this small letter doesn't take us to the the doctrinal heights of the mountains in the way Paul does in the book of Romans. But rather, this small letter helps us walk faithfully at a street level. This letter will remind us week in and week out that those high mountains of doctrine, they do make a discernible difference in how we live day in and day out. Because of the truth of Christianity, James will remind us that there's no need to avoid the hard issues of this life. And friends, that is good news. That's good news that you and I don't have to run from the hard topics or the hard issues or the hard questions. There is a faith that grounds followers of Jesus to true hope. And that true hope is meant to inform how we live and how we navigate our days in and through this broken and fallen world. But I must warn you, be careful. James will not allow us. He will not tolerate our religious facade. James will not be okay with us giving confessions, though our lives look drastically different. James is not okay with spiritual disguises. Rather, James will with every word, will call us to have real faith and a real Savior that demonstrates itself in visible and discernible ways. And so one of the ways I believe James will seek, uh, James does seek to serve our souls is that over the next few months, James will encourage you and I to come out from the hiding behind the mask of religiosity. James will call us to be holy, and he will remind us that our holiness is to be authentic. 
James will, will encourage us to think about our faith as a faith that works, not merely a faith that debates, not merely a faith that theorizes, but a faith that is put into action. James will call the Christian to get off of the sidelines of life and to engage in the mission and the battle in which God has called us to. This letter is highly instructive. It's practical. It's helpful. And it's equally convicting. And so this morning, before we jump into the first part of James, I want to pause and I want to pray and I want to beg God to bring us to a place of spirit rock conviction about the gaps that exist in our lives between what we know and how we live. Brothers and sisters, James is seeking to close those gaps. And in those ways, if we avail ourselves to the working of His Holy Spirit, we will be served to be more and more like Christ as we walk through this book. So let's pray. Our holy God, would you in great wisdom and mercy, kindness and grace, would you meet with us, even as we are scattered all over the Tampa Bay area? Would you remind us in the way in which you meet with us now, there's nothing unique about a, a location. God, when your word goes forth, your word accomplishes its purposes. And so we have Bibles opened in our homes this morning, many of us. Keep us from believing that there's no way you're going to move. Unleash your word by your spirit to accomplish your purposes for your glory among your people. And so would you use this sermon to those ends? We beg you to make the one that is heard far more effective than the one that is preached. Meet with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I do invite you to open your Bibles to the small letter of James. The letter of James. And as we begin our series through this letter, it's helpful for us to establish a baseline of information that every week we're going to draw upon. And it's helpful and it's necessary for us to establish this baseline of information because if we don't draw from this baseline of information week in and week out, then we run the risk of taking these verses out of their God-inspired context, which would lead us then to misapply these verses to our lives. And so I want to consider a few things this morning before we jump into James chapter 1. The first thing is the author, the author of James. James doesn't tell us much about himself, but he would have been well known to his, his original recipients. There are at least four men throughout the New Testament that are identified as James. History, tradition, and scholarship understand the author to be the son of Joseph and Mary. Yes, the brother of Jesus. The simplicity and the brevity of this greeting and this introduction cues us into the fact that James is a humble man. He could have, le he could have easily leaned into his resume and his credentials, being the brother of Jesus, being the leader of the council of Jerusalem there in Acts chapter 15. 
being the leader of the Jerusalem church there in Acts chapter 12, verse 17. And if we're trying to think about when this was written, it does seem, because of the issues that James talks about in this letter, that this was written sometime before the events of Acts chapter 15. And so for those of you that are uh, looking for a date to hang this on, let's just go with the early to mid-40s. And so think then about how far removed that is from the death of Jesus the Christ. And though James could have leaned on his credentials, his credentials really, uh, they don't seem to matter. His preferred way of identifying himself and speaking of himself was that he considers himself to be the Lord's servant. It would be helpful for us to remember that during his lifetime, James was not a follower of Jesus. In our series through the book of Mark, we remember there's the encounter where Jesus is out teaching and uh, performing miracles, and his family catches wind, and they begin to, to, get, to, to be concerned, and they go out to seek to find Jesus, to bring him back in. And what they say is that uh, they think that he's out of his mind. John chapter 7 verse 5 tells us that during Jesus' lifetime, that his family, they were not believers. But something changed. If you were to flip to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, what you would find in that encounter uh, is that when Paul says, I delivered to you that which was of utmost importance, that Christ died, He was buried, he raised according to the scriptures, and that he appeared then to Cephas, verse 5, then to to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep, verse 7. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. What was it that changed about James even his understanding of his identity in relation to his brother. It was the post-resurrection appearance. And that changed everything. And he identifies himself as a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the kind of servant that's described in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 16 and 17. The servant who, who doesn't have a debt... Not because he's worked long enough to pay it off, but because of the servant who, out of love for the master, has given himself in service. This is what the Old Testament refers to as a bond servant. Well, James understands this, that he is a servant to Jesus Christ, not because he was able to pay off a debt that he owed, but because of his brother's work. His brother paid the debt that he owed. And that changed everything about his identity. And so now he serves not out of duty, but rather out of joy and out of love. So that gives us a little information about the author. Then who is it that he's writing to? Who are the recipients of this small letter? Well, he tells us in verse 1, to the 12 tribes who were dispersed abroad. So James is writing to the 12 tribes, which would clue us into the fact that this is uh, an audience made up of Jewish Christians, and they were living in varied regions. This letter wasn't sent to one specific church, but to Christians who were scattered. If we were to flip and just 
kind of follow the timeline of what's happening in the history of God's people. In Acts chapter 8, we learn right after the stoning of Stephen, there in Acts chapter 7, that there was a great persecution. Acts chapter 8 tells us, That on that day, after Stephen was put to death, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And so the apostles stay there in Jerusalem. And there's a scattering then of those that are identified with following Jesus. And it's those whom James is writing to. The original audience had been scattered due to a great and violent persecution. They were, they were familiar with harsh conditions in which they did not anticipate. They had unexpectedly become refugees. And it appears, as we will find out throughout the letter, that many of them were poor. And not only were they poor, but they were facing exploitation by the wealthy in their day. And so when we think about this scattering, it would be helpful not for us to think that this is some church plant. No, this was uh, a scattering that involved separation and relocation and poverty and exploitation. And no doubt, these followers of Jesus at some point asked the question, why? And James writes to care for them in light of the harsh realities. And so the last consideration would just be the nature and the style, the purpose of this letter. This is a remarkably pastoral letter, uh, almost better even seen at times as a sermon of sorts. The favorite uh, language that James uses to refer to those that he's writing to are his brothers, my brethren, brothers. And that, that's, not a, uh, that's not a statement about uh, gender as much as it's the inclusion. He's writing to family, the family of God, great affection. His heart bleeds through this letter as he lovingly fights for their faith. He's concerned about the attitudes and he's concerned about the behaviors that could begin to creep in because of the difficulties of this life or that have already crept in in light of the difficulties. This book, this small letter contains the highest number of commands that's found in any other New Testament book. 59 commands out of the 108 verses. And so that clues us into the fact that this is not a letter that's meant to inform. James is not writing to merely inform his readers with information. No, he's writing to encourage them, to exhort them, to chastise them, to call them to action. Be prepared to move is what James is saying. Many people call James the Proverbs of the New Testament because it changes topics so quickly and so abruptly, but yet it packs a punch in its brevity. And so let's be clear. Some people want to say, ah, oh, yeah, Paul's concerned with doctrine and James is not, and so therefore James and Paul are at odds with one another. No, I, I think that is an unfair, and I think it's an, a false statement. It's not that James is not concerned with theology. James's concern with theology is particularly how it informs life. 
And not that Paul isn't concerned with how it informs life. Paul spends more time developing the beauties of the doctrine. James spends most time, all time, talking about how to live out the massive implications of right doctrine. And so with all of that in mind, I cannot imagine that the recipients that were reading this letter were anticipating this shocking perspective that James begins out of the gate. You see, knowing the backdrop of this letter ought to then allow us to feel the force of the perplexing introduction that James provides at the beginning of this letter. There's no lengthy greeting. In fact, it's one word, greetings. And in light of all the difficulties they were facing, James wastes no time introducing one stunning command to consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Put yourself in the shoes of the original audience. You're displaced, you're exploited, you're poor, you're separated, you're on the run, you are living at risk of losing your life. And the letter comes to you finally from the one who was anchoring the church there at Jerusalem. And you open it or you hear it read, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. One pastor said it best. From the get-go, James makes eye contact with the reader about a divine perspective on their trials. James makes it plain that since their trials come from God and they've been designed by God for a specific purpose, then these trials are to be a cause of joy. And brothers and sisters, God in like fashion is making eye contact with you and me. This past week has looked different than almost every one of us could have imagined. And there will be and there have been and perhaps there even are today Various trials that you're experiencing. Allow God in and through His Holy Spirit's powerful application of this word to make eye contact with you. Don't look away. The claim of this text on the original audience is the claim over us today. This passage is a unique gift that would help prepare us for trials. The trials that we have gone through so that we now gain a perspective about them, the trials that we are in, or the trials that are awaiting us. This passage is meant to equip us with a grace for the trials that we are experiencing. You see, this passage, when rightly understood and specifically applied, has a perspective-altering, attitude-adjusting, life-changing potential for how we view trials. One commentator Craig Blomberg said, frankly, many of us would prefer this passage were not in the Bible. But it may also be one of the most profound and crucial for living a mature Christian life. In his commentary, Dan McCartney says, to count testing as a joy is a truly radical proposal. How can testing and trial be regarded as joy? Brothers and sisters, think of the trials that you are engaged in now. James isn't writing about theoretical trials. No, this 
book, this letter, has street-level value. It's meant to cause you to think of your trials and to think then of this truth about your trial. And so let's lean in to learn how then we can count it joy, all joy, when we encounter various trials. Three points that will guide us through this shocking introduction. First, the presence of trials. The presence of trials. See this in verse 2. Well, let me read verses 1 through 4. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who were dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. First point, the presence of trials. See this in verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. When you encounter various trials. Commentator J. Alec Motier says, James is nothing if not realistic. Life is a tale of various trials. No Christian is exempt from this tale. There's realism that just bleeds and oozes and leaks from this small letter. Each of us are in the midst of some trial. As I went through the the directory this week and thinking about this sermon and praying for every member of our church in light of this sermon, I could come up with almost to a T, at least some form of a trial that every member is walking in. And I don't, even, I don't even fully have the scope of perspective into the lives of our members. But yet, this is the clear teaching of Scripture. This isn't something that James has sort of put on the map for us. No, Peter talks about this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Even now for a little while, You have been distressed by various trials. This is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 5. He says, we've been justified by faith and now we have peace with God. Verse 3, and and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. What? Exulting in tribulations. It's the same paradox that James is, is putting before us. Why in the world, how in the world can we exult in tribulations? Knowing that tribulation brings perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. I have no clue what the next seven days will look like. You have no clue what the next seven days will look like. But we can rest assured that we will encounter more and more trials the longer we live. James doesn't say if you encounter various trials, you can consider it joy. He says when you encounter various trials. You see, had James said if, you and I would have spent most of our life looking for the escape clause. 
uh, how, how does this sort of get me out of having to count it all joy when I'm going through a trial? And God the Father has decided that after coming to faith in Christ, that Christians then are not to be uh, plucked out of this world and disappear and immediately go to glory. Now, there's an intention for believers to stay here in a world that is still yearning and longing for redemption. And that means that we will face trials. And James is writing to those who are facing a specific trial. That specific trial is persecution. They have been displaced. They're being exploited. They are experiencing suffering because they're identifying with Jesus. And so some of us would read James chapter 1 and you would say, well, I'm not experiencing trial, so therefore that doesn't, that doesn't pertain to me. And though this audience is experiencing a specific trial, James opens up, inspired by the Holy Spirit, James opens up the scope of what kind of trial we're talking about. He says various trials. The word there, various, uh, it means multicolored. It means trials that come in all shapes and in all sizes that cover the gamut of life. So the momentary difficulties that you face, either because of your sin or because of someone else's sin against you, or because of just the reality of living in a broken world, those momentary trials and difficulties, they fall under this passage. The past week, these trials that we've faced, the economic hardships, the job ramifications, the social limitations, these are all part of the various trials Not just the momentary difficulties, but also the life-transforming trials. Again, as a result of sin, as a result of being sinned against, or just living in a broken world. James calls the reader, and he calls us by extension, to see that trials are not oddities in the Christian life. And what he's writing to do is not to pinpoint one trial in which you can then count it all joy. He's writing to say there is a God who is sovereign, who who takes various trials, all trials, and He accomplishes His good purposes through them. And therefore, we can count it all joy. We spoke about this in our Lamentations sermon series, but I wonder how many of us practically live as though God owes us a trial-free life. Right? No one is going to stand up and, and declare that on uh, on a, a Sunday morning or in a community group gathering, yes, God owes me a trial-free life. But I wonder how close our assumptions and our expectations are that that's what we're owed. You see, many of us equate various trials with God's displeasure. Or we think, if only I didn't have these trials, then I would be able to live out my faith better for all to see. Brothers and sisters, Christians have as many trials as anyone else. And perhaps even because of their faith, may even at times have more trials than other people. And the hope for us to shine before men is not that we would have less trials, but that our response would be different from everyone else who's experiencing any trials. The hope is that we would be able, of all people, to count trials as joy. All joy. Not merely because uh, we like pain. No, because we believe that there is a God who is over our trials, 
who gives trials, who allows trials to pass through his hands. Why? Because he's accomplishing our good in and through all of them. Which is why James says, when you encounter various trials, any trials, shapes, sizes, uh, different, all of the differences. The greatest test to any religion, any philosophy of life, any system of belief is what do you do with suffering and trial and hardship? And I'm thankful that the Christian faith offers life's, in, in the midst of life's greatest pains and hardships, the Christian faith offers the truth that Christianity is made for trials. The Christian faith is made for trials. Not because Christians like pain, but because Jesus is real and He Himself is acquainted with grief. And He is more powerful than even our greatest trial. And in great kindness and mercy, He uses them to serve His glory and to serve our joy. And so I just wonder, if you're listening, you're watching this, and you're not a follower of Jesus, where are you turning in the presence and in the midst of trials? And would you consider, would you consider turning to Christ? Trials have come. Trials are here. Or trials will come. They're tests that, it, that arrive with a purpose. And that leads us then to our second point. The purpose of trials. So number one, the presence of trials, verse 2. Number two, the purpose of trials. The purpose of trials, verses 3 and 4. Listen again. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in Nothing. One pastor noted that no trial in the life of a Christian is without a divine purpose. Stated another way, every trial in the life of a Christian has a divine purpose. Trials are tests, and they arrive to us with a purpose. And James clues us in to what that purpose is, verse 3. To produce within us endurance. To, provo- to produce within us steadfastness, to produce within us perseverance. In a day in which it is, uh, it is seen as uh, being all the more exclusive to have a custom-designed anything, Christians can rest assured that their trials have been custom-designed. Custom-designed for them, custom-designed for a purpose. And this is why James writes this in verse 3. And we must get this in verse 3. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. The original audience needed to be reminded of this regularly. You and I need to be reminded of this regularly and often. Because oftentimes the first casualty, whenever we uh, face and meet a trial, the first casualty is this loss of biblical perspective as to the purpose of the trial. Trial comes, and one of the first 
things that goes is just a biblical framework for the purpose of this trial, the purpose of this testing. And once you've lost that, you are vulnerable to all manner of sin and temptation. If there's nothing that's anchoring us down to a hope that this trial has a purpose that has been brought about by a sovereign God who is in control of all things, if that begins to go, then we become sort of victims of just allowing ourselves to be tossed about by the best, the best news that we can hear in trying to make sense of a trial. Our view of a trial is governed by what Oftentimes, our view of the trials are governed by what we feel as opposed to what we know. And James is seeking to warn these Christians that are facing great trial and persecution. Don't be swept away by your feelings. Don't be swept away by what it seems. Rather, lean into what you know to be true. Not about the trial, but about the God over the trial and His goodness. Mark Dever says, embracing trials doesn't mean that we are to pretend that they're not trials. It simply means that we are not to let our reactions to them be determined by how they first feel to us. Our reactions to trials must be informed and governed by what we believe to be the divine purpose of the trial. And look at what James says is God's purpose for the trials of various kinds. They test our faith and they produce endurance in us. Trials test your faith. If you're asking the question right now, why in the world, God, are you allowing this into my life? And you are a follower of Jesus. God has answered that. James chapter 1, verse 3. It is meant to test your faith and to produce endurance in you. And he says, knowing that, the testing of your faith. James is speaking to people whom he thinks should not be surprised by what he's going to say next. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. And you know this. You know that I'm not telling you something new, James is saying. If you have embraced the sovereignty of God, then you ought not be surprised that God is with us in our trials or that He's using our trials to accomplish His purposes. And when we think of the word test or we think about testing, oftentimes we think of academics, either a pass or a fail. But the Old Testament imagery that's, that sort of roots this word is a, is a metaphor about metal working. You see, when metal is found, it's found in its ore state. And the problem with ore is that it's full of imperfections. And the imperfections then rob the metal of, its both, uh, of both its strength and its beauty. And so what, what happens? A metal worker then uh, takes crazy amounts of heat, liquefies the metal... And boils it. Why? To remove the imperfections so as to maximize the strength and the beauty of the metal. And that's what James is saying that trials do for the Christian. God has so ordained trials in the life of His children for a similar refining process. 
But we're not left to wonder what the specific quality God is trying to refine in us. It's not that, okay, we've, uh, we've, we're being tested, we're being trialed, but what is it that He's wanting to produce in us? No, we're, we're, we're given that information. James tells us, verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Endurance. Again, who is He writing to? He's writing to a people who were tempted Perhaps to just give up. The persecution, the trials, the exploitation, the poverty. It's just, is it worth it? Has God forgotten us? And James is writing to say, no, no, no. It's not just that he's not forgotten about you. It's that he so designed this to, to ensure that you get to the appointed destination. Endurance. Or perhaps your translation says steadfastness. That word is marked by two qualities. Number one, a fixed direction. And number two, a secured purpose. And so no matter what it is that God brings my way, if I'm going to endure, I am fixed on a direction and I understand a set purpose. And so endurance then means that in the face of trial or difficulty, we don't abandon that direction. We don't abandon understanding and belief in the purpose. The word literally means to bear up under, to stand up under the weight of. And in a day in which when trials come, the the vogue and the the cultural kind of uh, encouragement is to just, we'll, we'll go somewhere else, give up, run to something else that isn't so hard. And James is writing to encourage these Christians, no, 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 don't give up, endure, not because you're not because you're a sadist and you enjoy pain and, and it's this uh, it's kind of gross form of, of agony is pleasure. and No, because there is a good God who is over this trial and who is accomplishing His purposes. Again, Paul Tripp, God will take you where you have not intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. And what we find in verses 3 and 4 is that the purpose of these trials, it's only accomplished if we respond appropriately. Again, James is all about faith in action, grace-motivated imperatives. This isn't just a, James isn't just sort of saying, okay, this is a drowsy lesson that I want to teach you, learn it so that one day you may be able to tell somebody else. No, James is saying, wake up. Don't just listen to what I'm saying. Live out what I'm saying. And what is it that he's saying? That trials have, have the, the trials that they meet and the trials that we meet have been designed by a good and gracious God for a divine purpose. And that purpose is not so that we would merely experience a trial. It's not so that we would find trials and just come up against a trial and say, okay, I'm facing a trial. Now God is, 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 is through with me or I'm doing exactly what it is that I'm supposed to be doing. No, trials don't produce maturity. Maturity comes from endurance in the trial. So it's not just, let's take comfort because I'm experiencing a trial. That's everybody. It's Let's lean in to how maturity is formed. And it's not just because we experience trials. It's because we endure in trials. We can waste our trials and not grow through them. As I was thinking about this this week, 
perhaps the only thing more discouraging than facing a trial is wasting the opportunity to grow through a trial. Trials are difficult in and of themselves, but how discouraging that we would go through a trial only to get to the other side of it and not have grown, perhaps even for many of us to have been set back because we began this process of doubting God, drawing away from God, questioning God. And again, Lamentations taught us we can, we can go to God, we can have doubts, we can have questions, but we don't withdraw from God in those. We, we press into Him with those doubts and with those questions. And yet, I know so many people who walk through trials who would say, before this trial, I was here, and now in light, on the other side of this trial, I'm way back here. And so the only thing that's, that's worse than having to endure a difficult trial is to think that I've not even grown in and through this trial. I've missed this opportunity. And that's why James is writing. It's because he wants to protect the reader, and he wants to protect us, by extension, from wasting our trials. But verse 4 also tells us that it's not the end goal merely isn't endurance. So our trials are tested, or our faith is tested to produce endurance. And then verse 4, endurance is taking us somewhere. Where is it that endurance is taking us? And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete. Another word there for perfect would be mature. Lacking in nothing. The end goal of enduring under a trial is not merely to just endure. The end goal is that there is a glorious destination that the hard road of endurance leads us to. It's to a place where we lack nothing. God is faithful to not only bring trials into the life of his children, but He's also faithful to ensure that those trials produce an endurance, and that endurance gets them to glory. That's what James is saying. James is saying, don't quit on your trial because your trial is producing endurance, and endurance is getting you somewhere. And how quickly do we, in the face of trial, just forget that there's a glorious destination, that this Trial is producing endurance, and endurance is carrying us somewhere. The aim of the Christian life is not merely to begin endurance, but to allow endurance to run its course. And I want to be clear. Some trials will come into your life without an expiration date. And that doesn't mean that somehow... Various trials exempts you. Brothers and sisters, endure. Not because trials are fun, but because we trust and know that there is a God who is producing something in us. We don't count it joy just because the outcome of a trial gets us some temporary relief that we want. We count it joy because we know our trials and our, even our own lives are being held by a sovereign God who is good in the trial. He's sovereign over the trial, and He has a purpose in the trial. The road is long and hard, and it's unrelenting, yet we are called to persist 
in endurance. Like a muscle that becomes strong when it faces resistance, so too Christians learn to remain faithful to God over the long haul when they face difficulty. And so as I prayed this week, going through the directory, this is what I'm aware of. Some of you are facing a long, hard road carrying a heavy burden And as best as you can tell, perhaps there's not even an end in sight. My prayer this week has been that the Word of God through James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, would breathe new strength into your soul for the difficult journey. The Christian faith cannot promise you an easy journey. But we can anchor our hope in a God who is sovereign in the difficulties, and good in the trials. The trials that you and I are enduring are refining your, our faith. And we're displaying the genuineness of our faith as we endure it. And brothers and sisters, as other people observe you endure trials, you are provoking them. You are spurring them on to love and good deeds. You are encouraging them to follow your examples. Brothers, sisters, don't give up. Don't give up in the midst of trial. There is a grace for you today. And when you wake up tomorrow, wearied from the fight in the day before, there will be new grace and new mercy for you. And and we have the privilege as a church family to look around and to see one another's suffering and walking through trials. We have an opportunity to weep with people and mourn with people and move towards people. And then at the appropriate time to remind people. That trials are giving us an opportunity to display the worthiness of God and there's something that He is working in us through the trial. What a privilege you and I have to display the worth of God and to demonstrate love for God. And trials give us that opportunity unlike anything else. The very one whose pain I caused on the cross because of my sin. The very one who died for me on the cross, having forgiven me because of the cross, now by grace I can please him and I can honor him and I can display his glory to others in the midst of trials. Brothers and sisters, what greater calling? And my non-Christian friends, what is it that your trials are producing? Brings us to our last point. Our response to trials. Our response to trials. Verse 2. Consider it all joy. The appropriate response to various trials is to consider it, to count it all joy. And as shocked as perhaps you are to hear that, again, think of the original recipients. They were all the more. But they needed this command, and we need this command, because our instinctive response to trials is not this. This is not how we normally meet a trial. Oftentimes, to our shame, we meet trials with complaint. And it would be easy to read this and say, oh, it's okay, this is James, and James is being irrational because no one in their right mind responds to trials in this way. But before we dismiss James as being irrational, let me propose this morning something that many people do that is far more irrational. 
whenever we encounter trials, many people, you know what they do? They panic. They worry themselves sick. They worry themselves so hard they have panic attacks. And I just want to say that is not far more rational than counting trials all joy. Some get drunk. Some walk away from God. We medicate. We over-entertain. We rebel because it's too hard to take. We lust. We give in to sexual temptation. And so I just want you to know that of all of the options out there, James's, James's command is not as irrational as we think. In fact, this may be one of the sanest and soberest responses we have. Quit turning to things that don't satisfy you. And you will only quit turning to things that don't satisfy you once you understand exactly how Jesus does. And James is writing to say, you can count it all joy. Brothers, think about, think about ways in which Christ has provided for you thus far. And it's this argument from the greater to the lesser. We can trust that God will meet our needs in this life, in and through trials. Why? Because He has met our most fundamental need in and through Jesus Christ. God the Father sent the Son to make life with Him possible whenever sin broke that opportunity. When sin rendered a a, a, a gap, a chasm between us and God. We were unable to dwell with God. Our sin had broken us and broken even that opportunity. And the right penalty and payment for that is is God's wrath poured out in eternal, everlasting anger and righteousness against sin. And we see at the end of the life of Jesus, He endures that. He absorbs that. Through his death on a cross in the place of sinners to exhaust that punishment for sin that wasn't his. And then he rose on the third day, showing that that hope is living and that that sacrifice was sufficient. And so I want to say to my non Christian friends no one or nothing else will solve your most fundamental problem. Why in the world then would you entrust lesser things to functional saviors that can't save? Good news today, James reminding these believers of why and how they can respond this way. There is a better way for you to respond to your trials. And it begins by coming to the end of yourself and trusting Him to do what you cannot do in and of yourself. He alone can give you what you lack to bear up under the trials. And He alone can give you a purpose that will allow you to count your trials all joy. Non-Christian friends, I trust you. Turn from your sin and believe in the work of Jesus. And if you have questions about that, contact anyone affiliated, associated with this church. James is reminding us of the ever-present New Testament teaching on trials. Matthew 5, we are to rejoice in them. Acts chapter 5, Peter says he is, he is rejoicing that he's counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. And so I just want to break down, count it all joy. Consider it all joy. Consider, it's a command to, to think and to reflect theologically on the trial. To count means to assess 
And so James is writing to say we must act decisively in a trial, not because they, don't, not because they feel pleasant. And we have to understand, trials aren't random, but they arrive with a divine purpose. And if we don't count, if we don't stop to consider, to assess why is the trial here, we will then end up reacting to how it feels more than responding to what we know to be true. So count it. Count it. Oh, joy. The it there, again, commentator J. Alec Motier says, the small word it contains the whole of life. It sums up in its tiny compass every one of the trials in the past, in the present, and in the future. There is no calamity outside the plan of God. And so for Christians, trials don't exist outside the plan of God. The trials that you've been considering in your mind throughout this sermon, it's included by that small word, it. They are all under control of our sovereign good God. What you are experiencing does not lie outside the purposes of God. I'm I'm helped by this quote by Charles Spurgeon. It would be a sharp and trying experience to think I have an affliction which God never sent me. That the bitter cup was never filled by His hand. That my trials were never measured out by Him, nor sent to me by His arrangement of their weight and quantity. By God's grace, that is not our experience. Every trial that we face has been measured out, sent to us, weighed in by, in His hands. Count it all joy. Count it all joy. Again, this is where I'm reading. I'm just, come on, James. Uh, this doesn't seem fair. These people were abruptly relocated, dispersed, scattered. Now they're poor, and they are to count that all joy. How in the world do we reconcile painful trial with this command? And again, don't misunderstand James. James is not saying that we shouldn't be saddened by our trials. He's not saying that, that there should be no sorrow because of our trials. No, Lamentations has reminded us of this. The Psalms remind us of this. This is not a command to merely be happy. This isn't a command to do away with sorrow. This is not about superficial happiness. The ground for joy in our trials is not derived from the trial, but what God is accomplishing through the trial. And that's why we can count it all joy, because there are desirable outcomes to every trial that God has sent our way. We can respond to a trial in this unusual way because we know and we believe that somehow, in some way, God is at work in our trials to develop endurance in our lives. And endurance will get us home. We need something to transcend our feelings about our trials. And James is wanting to make eye contact with each of us at this point right now. Count it all joy, brothers and sisters. Not enjoyable. Count it joy because God is working to produce perseverance in your life. And this is what's happening in your heart, by His grace, for your good, and for His glory. God often draws the straightest lines from life's greatest difficulties to our deepest joys. Some of his straightest lines, they run from greatest difficulties to deepest joys. 
And when trials assault our surface pleasures, we're pressed to consider truer and deeper and greater joys, to tap into those roots for sustenance in ways that we do not know when all is well. Trials are present. God uses them, and there's an appropriate response to them. And so I pray that our response would make clear that our hope is in the King of glory who sits over our trials. Let's pray.